one of us here, I think, in some ways, grew up with Disney movies and grew up with happy endings to some degree or another. There is no happy ending in this psalm, and that makes it particularly jarring. There is no end, it seems, in the psalm to what appears to be hopelessness. Some people have called this the most discouraging chapter in the Bible. Perhaps it is. And yet it's in God's Word, and I think there is much that it can teach us. Please read with me, reading out of the ESV, English Standard Version, Psalm 88. Let's see the pain, let's see the suffering, let's see the realness, the honesty of true lament. A song. A psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalath Leonoth, a masculine of Haman the Ezrahite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to hear my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead. Like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those who remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Sailor, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Sailor, is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assault destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is God's word. I wasn't lying when I said there was no happy resolution there. If you look at verse 18, you could write that another way. My companions have become darkness. You could write that another way. My only friend is darkness. The only thing that's with me is darkness. It is very, very real. It is very raw. True lament is very, very honest. And true faith, however, which we see here, is dogged and determined in attaching itself onto God. Why start the year off with a psalm like this? 
Why start off a year with a psalm like this? Because we ought not to pretend that struggles vanish. We ought not to pretend that difficulties are not part of life and part of reality. Our understanding of God needs to be big enough that life struggles are seen rightly. And also, I am convinced that the good news of Jesus Christ shines more brightly and it is more beautiful when we see it from the valleys. A quick look at how to break down the psalm. The first two verses is an unanswered prayer. Verses 3 to 9, he identifies the source of the problem. Verses 10 to 12, the psalmist begins a little bit of a a back and forth argument with God. And then in verses 13 to the end, in verse 18, the prayer remains unanswered. Unanswered. We don't know much about the author of this. This is the first time that we're doing a psalm where David is not the author. His name is... Heman the Ezrahite. We don't know much about him. He's probably a wise man during the time of King Solomon. So this is after David. And uh, you could read about this time period around about 1 Kings chapter 4, which is where the Ezrahites are mentioned. But we see that this is a believer. He says, the God of my salvation. He's praying. Day and night, he says, he cries, he's asking for help. Life is hard. And some of us know this feeling. We're not told exactly what this man's problem is. We're not told exactly what his struggle is. Could be health issues. If you read towards the end, it's been problems that have plagued him since his youth. It could be someone who battles deep depression. This is someone who's perhaps battled strong relationship troubles. Illness. Who knows? He's struggling, and therefore, we are told that it is broad and big enough to apply to almost any person. He feels hopeless, he's suffering, and he's praying night and day. And the crazy thing is, the answer to his prayer comes back as silence. He doesn't understand. And he's wondering, has God heard me? Am I all alone? Is darkness really my only friend? And he's struggling. We're going to pull some answers out of this. There are answers in here. The reason explicitly for the suffering is not shared directly, but there's much that we can learn. Now, I want to just, I'm going to name some names here, and I believe in doing that from time to time. There are a number of false understandings of the role of suffering and hardship and pain in the Christian life. I want to highlight four of them, and I want to bring them up and spend a little bit of time on them, because contrary to popular belief, not all opinions are equally valid. Not all truth is God's truth. And some understandings of suffering and difficulty and pain that are very popular in our culture are simply not true. 
One of them is that believers who receive God's salvation, Christians, are to be automatically living a life of ease. That that is the prototypical normal Christian life, an easy life of joy and happiness. Rainbows and butterflies. Psalms like this help us to see that that's not the case. If this jars us into anything, let us jar us into realizing that that is not always the case. My mind boggles when I hear a presentation of a normal Christian life which could not be true of Jesus or his early disciples. You thought of that? Whenever you hear someone describe the Christian life and they tell you that it's supposed to be easy and nice and you say, was this true of Jesus? Was this true of the Twelve? Was this true of the early church? And you start and you say, no, it wasn't. Then it's probably not true. It's probably not biblical. Most of those early disciples were martyred. Let us... Trust enough in the power of the Holy Spirit that we are able to recognize and not hide the fact that becoming a Christian might make your life harder rather than easier. The psalmist really does appear to be living his worst life now, and yet he's not giving up on God. Another false understanding is that suffering and pain are simply an illusion. They're an illusion, and if we have the right understanding and the right attitude, we will realize that things are actually not as they seem, and it is possible to live a victorious life free from suffering. You just need to change your mindset, think rightly, and your suffering will disappear. The belief is that an enlightened mind realizes that pain is an illusion and can make it go away. This, to some degree, is the teaching of the Christian Science Church founded by Mary Baker Eddy. There is one of them on Church Street. That's what they believe. And it's been adopted into Christianity by some that suffering is just uh, an illusion. They will say that it's not simply positive thinking. Think positive and all your problems will go away. They'll say that, but that's really what it is, and they've dressed it up with religious terms. If you have God in your life, if Jesus is your Savior, you're able to have an enlightened mind and your suffering will disappear. You will see it rightly. It's not true at all, and we do not see this example in the life of Jesus. Did Jesus suffer? Did Jesus struggle with pain? I would submit that the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is sweating drops of blood, Jesus was suffering a little bit. He was. His disciples had troubles. And what makes it worse is some of this this teaching, especially Mary Baker Eddy's Christian Science stuff, is that they then also deny that Jesus Christ is actually God. There's no gospel. And it promises something that is unable of delivering. And it promises something that is against reality. Another more popular version is of understanding of suffering is that propagated by the word of faith movement, which is very broad. A lot of what you see on TV preaching is influenced by the word of faith movement. 
This simply says that if you have enough faith, your problems will go away. That's basically what it believes. Now, I want to say there's some truth to that. There's nuance. At no point is saying, at no time is saying, trust God, have faith in God. At no point is that bad advice. Never ever is bad advice to tell someone to trust God. Nor is asking God to remove pain and suffering and to bring healing into a situation. That is a good thing. We are called to ask that. The problem is, and the psalmist is doing that, the problem is, and what is dangerous is saying, if you have a certain amount of faith, if you have enough faith, God is obligated to heal you. That's where the problem comes in. That's where the problem comes in. I can speak to this error, the word of faith error, very personally. And I still clearly remember as an eight-year-old being taken to one of the largest word of faith churches in the world. I, 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 I hesitate to call it a church. I prefer to call it a synagogue of Satan. But um, some of you will know that I have no hearing at all in my right ear, and I have half hearing, or maybe even less than half hearing in my left ear. For all accounts, I'm very deaf, and when I was eight years old, the technology was not very good, okay? So it was a, it was a real scare for someone who's had uh, hearing problems since really young age. So my parents tried everything. And one of the things they tried was the Word of Faith Church. And I very clearly remember being taken to one of the big American Word of Faith preachers who came into town and promised a healing rally. And I was taken into a side room, taken into a side office, and I was asked, Do you want God to heal you? And I said, Yes. And he says, how bad do you want him to heal you? And I, my answer was, well, if God wants to heal me, I'd like to be healed. But if he doesn't, I'm okay with that. That was my mindset as an eight-year-old. This offended the word of faith preacher to no end. And he said to me, imagine you have a busted up old bicycle and I offer you a brand new bicycle. Would you not take the brand new bicycle? I said to him, if you're talking about my ears, I don't think of them like that. He was offended by that too, but anyway, prayed for me anyway, this disobedient, faithless young eight-year-old boy, prayed for me, I wasn't healed, and I went about my way. Didn't quite understand what had happened, didn't quite know what to make of it, but I'd been to the, the Methodists and the Word of Faith people and, and the, the tent healers. I'd been everywhere in my short time and been prayed for, so I just figured it was another one of that. A few days later, the preacher was still in town. And we went back. I remember my mother swearing. She's going to listen to the podcast. I remember my mother swearing. The reason she did, the preacher got up on stage and said that he had a young boy who had a disability, and he'd been asked if he wanted to be healed. And he said, the boy did not demonstrate enough faith to be healed. 
At that point, my mother swore loudly. The problem with this line of thinking is that healing is nowhere promised in this life. It is given, praise God, but it is nowhere promised. And the problem with saying that if you have enough faith you will be healed, the problem with it is it makes man sovereign rather than God. It makes man or faith sovereign rather than God. It says to God that you must jump through this hoop if we do this. It puts the power in the wrong place. It makes God simply into a law, an impersonal God. And it doesn't lead to actual empathy. I was blamed for not being healed because I lacked faith. That's not empathy. That's not empathy. That's karma all over again dressed up in Christian language. If you're suffering, it's because you somehow earned it. If you're blessed, it's because you somehow earned it. That's what it's saying. A passage like Psalm 88 should make us very uncomfortable, and it should make us realize that sometimes we need to be very, very patient with people that are struggling. Some people have struggles different to our own, believe it or not, and we should be patient and empathetic towards them, even if we think we know all the answers to their problems. There is room for patience. And lastly, lastly, it's possible to come to a passage like this, look at it and say, the only answer to the problem of suffering is to realize that there are no answers. Some people try and take that sort of mindset. The answer is to realize that there are no answers, so just deal with it. And that's not true either. That's not true either. This psalm is not teaching some sort of existential Christian nihilism. It's not. Where life has no answers and no real meaning. That's not true either. The psalm does give answers and it does teach us, even in the bleakness. We will look at the end at some of the example of this psalmist. But let's get back to to the text. I think it's very unloving when we present opinions as if they're all equally valid because opinions and and viewpoints have actual impact on our life. And it is important to think about suffering and hardship publicly. If you look at verses 3 to 9, and you you might have picked this up as we read through, who is the psalmist annoyed with? Who did the psalmist point out point to as the source of his problems. God. He says God himself. Now there are many, many times in life when we are in trouble and we've put ourselves there. I've often said that I am my own worst enemy. Maybe you feel that way. But we don't have a lot of clarity as to what the psalmist's actual problem is. But if we look at verse 6, it's like the psalmist is saying, I'm close to death, God, and you've put me there. I feel closed in, I feel trapped, and you're not letting me out. I'm suffering, I have no friends, and I feel like your wrath is upon me. Help, you've done this. 
That is what he feels. That is what he senses is happening in his life. He believes that God could simply let him out of the problems that are in his life, and God is not letting them, therefore he is annoyed at God. I want us to notice something in this text. The psalmist does not abandon God's sovereignty in his pain. He never does. Instead, he highlights it. God's sovereignty has highlighted this entire 18 verses. And I think this goes against another very popular cultural, even Christian understanding of suffering and pain. What we do is we depower God. We depower God. Years ago, a very popular book was written, and it was called Why Bad Things Happen to Good People by Rabbi Harold Kushner. Anyone read it? That's good. That's good. But you've been influenced by it at some point. All of us. We've heard it. It's crept in. In it, this liberal rabbi depowered God to the point that God was simply unable to help at all. God would love to help you, but he can't. That's what he says. God is crying with you, but he is unable to do anything to help you out. People were encouraged to hold on to their faith and find relief in the fact that God's hands are tied. Keep believing in God. It has some benefit. Just know that he can't really actually help you. That that book summed up. Another popular view of of late, and thankfully it's dying out, is something called open theism or process theology, which says that God is growing and maturing as well, just like you are. He's gone from the Old Testament. He was a hellish beast, and he is becoming better and better and wiser and wiser into the New Testament. And God simply doesn't know the future because he's growing and maturing just like you are. If something bad happens to you, God simply didn't know about it. He couldn't. That is doing theology from a human level, looking at the problem of suffering and seeking to depower God to make sure that God is not looking at us suffering and doing nothing. Unhelpful too. Unhelpful. Not true. The psalmist does not attempt to strip God of who he is so he can find relief. And that's important. It's very important for us to keep in mind. A powerless God is no God at all. Even if he is not jumping through all the hoops that you want him to. And so he begins arguing with God. I want to read these again, verses 10 to 12. He says this, Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? What's he saying? He's arguing with God in his pain and in his suffering. And he's arguing. What's he saying? He's saying things like, how do I praise you, God, if you won't act? How do I speak of your faithfulness if you leave me in the pit? God, do you realize that dead men don't worship? What are you doing? 
There's another lesson here. He doesn't abandon God's sovereignty and he also realizes that he exists to praise and worship and enjoy God. That that is God's purpose for him. We know the the Westminster Catechism, the first question, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. He's saying, how am I able to do that in my suffering? How does he's saying, I don't see how my difficulty allows me to fulfill your purpose for me. God, what is wrong with you? You are not acting in the way that I expect. If you cannot identify that with that right now, I'm sure you will identify with that mindset in a few years' time. It is true for all of us, I believe, at some point or another. What are you doing in this? God, surely your purposes, your faithfulness, your love, your greatness, your majesty would be more fully seen if you bring me out of the pit. Why do you leave me there? Isn't it funny? And this is where we begin to see Jesus Christ in the psalm. We've seen that much of the psalms that we've looked at, we've seen that David's life in some ways imitates Christ's life. David is a type of Christ. Or we see a direct prophecy that is written in one of the psalms and then it's talked about in the New Testament. How do we get to Christ from the psalm of despair? One of the ways we do is in verses 10 to 12. God does everything that the psalmist says he can't. If you don't believe me, look back. Let's go back to verse 10. We're going to work through it. Do you work wonders for the dead? It's as if God replies, absolutely, yes, I will. Do the departed rise up to praise you? Yes, just you watch there will be a resurrection from the dead. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Yes, from my son's grave. Will your faithfulness to be, be declared in the depths of hell? Yes, my son will endure it for you. Are your wonders known in the darkness? Yes, they will. Is your righteousness known in the land of forgetfulness? Yes, my righteousness will shine forth in my son and all the world will know as far as the curse is found. Everything the psalmist questions and argues that God, everything Every time he says, God, how are you doing this? Why are you doing this? You can't be glorified in this. You can't act this way. God says, just you wait. Just you watch. God is never a God who does nothing. He will put things right, but he does it his way. And he does it in a way that the psalmist believes is impossible. I love that. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Absolutely. He died upon a cross, went into the grave, and on the third day he rose again. The steadfast love is absolutely declared in the grave. 
this psalm highlights the finality of death and the hope of the resurrection. That's what it does. From the moment we are born, we have one foot in the grave. The Old Testament saints understood this, but they did not understand the full picture of how great the resurrection is. Where is hope found in the suffering and the difficulty? Hope is found in the fact that one has conquered the grave, that Jesus rose again, that there was life in him. The sin that brings death is washed away by his blood, spilt in death. There is life for all who hope in him because he lives and rules and reigns. Think of what a much greater hope this is. This is not a hope based on positive thinking. This is not a hope based on you trying to make yourself better through your own faith. This is not a hope based on grinning it and bearing it. This is not a hope based on deciding that there is no meaning in life and that there is no meaning in suffering. No, hope has a name. His name is Jesus Christ and he has risen from the grave outside of him. There was no hope for the human race. Go home today and read verses 10 to 12 again and be amazed when we look from our New Testament lens on this side of the cross. Always people would like to say today on the right side of history. Look back. What do we see? Now I do want to be careful and mention that the psalm still does not end on a happy note. It doesn't. The prayer, in a sense, does remain unanswered. The psalmist does end by saying, my only friend, my only companion seems to be the darkness. But there are four things that I think we can learn. Firstly, he says, In verse 1, and this is a point of hope. Four lessons and points of hope. Verse 1, he says, that God is the God of my salvation. And this is hope. He does not forget this truth, this honest lament. He does not forget the fact that even amongst unrelief unrelief suffering, he has salvation. He has been reconciled to God. Calvin in his commentary on the text called the salvation a bridle which he places upon himself to stop the excess of despair. He does not allow himself to go off into ultimate despair, utter despair. He has hope and hope does not require happiness or ease. Secondly, and I've mentioned this already, do we not see in verses 10 to 12 that there is still a desire, a heartfelt desire to praise God. He knows he must. He knows God deserves it. Sometimes we don't feel like it, but the psalmist continues praising the God, the God of his salvation even when it's hard. That's a lesson for us. Thirdly, If you go through this entire psalm, do we notice that he doesn't stop praying? He doesn't stop. There's no giving up even with the lack of answers. There are still cries for help morning and night. 
I want to submit that maybe we shouldn't be so shocked by this picture of a man who has a hard life of suffering, yet keeps praying, keeps seeking to praise God, and keeps soldiering on towards death, even if God doesn't give him ease in this life. Praise God if your life is easy. Praise God if it is hard, because so it was for Christ. We shouldn't be so shocked by this. And lastly, I'm going to end on a good note. There is no happy ending in the psalm. But we need to know as Christians, the psalm does point to Christ and the resurrection from the dead. And Psalm 88 is not the end of the story. The Bible does not end in verse 18 of Psalm 88. It keeps going. Revelation chapter 21 and 22 is the end of the story. Not this. So we, from our position, we can look back to the work of Christ. We can find hope in the present and the God of our salvation because Christ has died and risen again. And we can look ahead to the future return of Christ. It does not mean that this life will then be easy, but we know that it is temporary and not all that there is. And because hope has risen from the grave, we too will rise. That is what I believe God would have us know from Psalm 88. There's no happy ending for the psalmist in this life, but there is a happy ending in the resurrection for him and for you too. Let's pray.